Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may go ahead and have a seat. I have a weakness for run-on sentences. It wasn't always the case. I learned proper sentence structure as a student, but it's become a regular problem in most anything I write today. The parenthetical statements pile up and up. The digressions multiply. And providing more information always feels so necessary. It's even affected my conversational style, not just my writing. Some of you may have recognized that in speaking with me. Our New Testament reading this morning suggests the Apostle Paul may have shared this weakness. Our English translation obscures this, but all 11 verses in Ephesians 1 this morning form one gigantic sentence. 202 words, the second longest in the New Testament. The longest is in Colossians, also by Paul. It's one lengthy run-on sentence, chock full of clause upon clause, all describing the abundant blessings of God available in Christ. Like my parenthetical digressions, it's as though Paul is seeking to cram all these cosmic and astounding things into one single sentence, like pushing the bounds of language and grammar. It is a majestic, transformative, and beautiful, if grammatically troubled, run-on sentence. (laughs) Today is the beginning of this capital campaign, thanks be to God. Over the coming weeks, our Sunday worship will be informed by this initiative of generosity, this fundraising effort, related to the future mission of this church in this location. The title, Thanks Be to God, is meant to convey that the entirety of this campaign is best understood as a response to the prior action of God, a response to His lavish grace in our lives, His abundant blessing upon us as a community. A particular emphasis of this initiative reflected in the title highlighted today is the practice of thanksgiving. It was there in our readings this morning. A simple principle guiding us in all of this is that generosity, whatever form it takes, is rooted in gratitude. Our generosity arises from gratitude, from our thanksgiving to God. This principle is captured in the very first verse of our text from Ephesians, verse 3. There Paul begins, praise be to God. But that word praise shares its form with the words blessed and blessing found later on in verse 3. So that the verse could actually be translated as something like, blessed be God who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. It's this swirl of reciprocal blessing poured out upon the people of God and returned to Him. In many ways, I think thanksgiving can be understood as the foundational practice of the Christian faith. The Eucharist, what we do at this table, that term literally means thanksgiving. It's a posture, a practice for the whole of life in response to God's grace. This week, Aaron Judge matched Roger Maris's record for American League home runs. He hit his 61st home run. This is baseball, for those of you who don't know. <laughs> I happened to see a highlight of it. In the slow-motion replay of this record-matching swing, what stood out to me was the reaction of the fans. 
As soon as Judge hit the ball, it was a no-doubter. It was the hardest ball he'd hit all year. It was immediately, that's a home run. As soon as he swung in slow motion, the fans erupted. No one told them to. No one forced them to. There's no sense of obligation. In response to what they had witnessed, the wonder of it, they jumped up with enthusiasm. In the replay that I watched at the very center of the frame was a, shall we say, amply proportioned gentleman in a Yankees jersey. And he was the first in all his splendor to respond. And he was, let me tell you, a big dude. <laughs> Just letting everyone else soak it in, follow his lead. Watching him, the word that came to mind was generosity. He's generously sized, but there was a certain enthusiasm, a largesse to his exuberance. That's the relationship between thanksgiving and generosity. Bearing witness to something incredible. We respond with freedom, with exuberance. If you were here a few weeks ago when I last preached, this is very similar to a point I made then, but it feels incredibly urgent to me and especially important in relation to what we are doing in these weeks in this campaign. There are very real financial needs, very real opportunities that this campaign is seeking to address. There is a vision that I believe God is calling us into as a community. But we serve a God who does not lack for resources. We serve a God who in the blink of an eye could provide more than we could ask or imagine. And I'm convinced that more important than any financial outcome, it is God's desire to do a deeper and more profound work among us. That we as a community together, that you as an individual would grow in deeper, more profound experiential awareness of God's grace in your life for you. That you and I would increase in our understanding of the depth and breadth of all that God has done for us in Jesus. Such that we would give financially, sure. But more than that, that we would live our days, our lives, as an expression of thanks be to God. A pattern of life of generous praise. To that end, with that goal in mind, this morning I want to spend the next few minutes looking at these opening verses from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. At the blessing, this glorious run-on sentence enumerating the blessings that are ours in Christ. And I want to cluster our thinking around these three headings, status, destiny, and vocation. These three arenas of life in which the blessings of God are richly known in Jesus. So first, status. All the blessings that Paul describes in this one long sentence fall under this heading, spiritual blessings in heavenly realms. Now those descriptors, spiritual and heavenly, might strike us as though these blessings are somewhat amorphous, nebulous. There's a certain unreality, we might think. If someone tells you, I got this amazing present for you, it's spiritual, you're like, okay. <laughs> it's not a real present. It's in a heavenly realm, right? That's worse than Amazon lost it or something like that. It suggests to us something less than tangible, less real. But this is not at all what Paul is saying. This is not at all what he's describing. New Testament scholar Lynn Kohek, she argues that the blessings here don't stand in contrast to material blessings. What he means by spiritual is that the blessings are associated with the person of the Holy Spirit. 
The very person, the very presence of God is responsible for the blessings of life, material and immaterial. Each of the blessings Paul goes on to describe are the fruit of God's presence, the fruit of this new and concrete relational status with God. And the same thing applies for the word heavenly. When you hear the word heaven or heavenly, don't think like far off and distant. Paul's mention here of heavenly realms, as well as his description in verse 10 of how everything's brought into unity under Jesus, it reflects this conception of the universe as this ordered, and this is a $10 word, hierarchical thing, where everything, seen and unseen, is taking its place in order, under authority. And what he's saying is at the very top, or in the very center, in what we might call the control room of reality, there is Christ with favor for you. That in that place, in the very center, the very top, you have favored status. In the most important place, the place that counts the most, there's favor. There is goodwill for you. The one who holds all things in his hands is looking out for you, looking upon you with love, with a desire to bless. The declaration that you have blessings in heavenly realms is not like getting a spam email from someone you've never met saying that there's money for you in some place you've never been, right? Instead, I encourage you, think of it as the most powerful person you can imagine reaching out in the flesh, communicating to you their care for you, that you have their favor, and that their resources are marshaled on your behalf. When you see the word heaven or heavenly in the Bible, don't think far off or distant. Think where it matters most. In the place, in that place, you have special status. And that notion continues through the whole of the verse, the, the, the text. It permeates Paul's writing here, verse 4, for he chose us, verses 4 and 5, in love he predestined us for adoption to sonship. Verse 6, he's given us, given to us in the one he loves, in his beloved. This is who you are. It's essential that this truth lay hold of you. It is a healing, restorative, life-giving thing that you are beloved in Christ. At the center of the universe, you have a share in the love that God the Father has for God the Son. You have a claim in Jesus upon the love out of which all things were made. Don't be distracted by questions about the timing, the manner of God's choosing. It's not that those considerations are unimportant, but they do pale in significance to this simple reality that the God of all creation has chosen you. This is what Jesus tells his followers in John 15. You think you found me. I chose you according to his good pleasure. He willed, he desired you to have a share in his love, for you to receive his abundant grace and blessing. Think of the dignity that this confers. Think of the sense of true freedom, of lasting confidence that is yours in every situation, in every trial. Where it matters most, you are secure. To the one who matters most, you are beloved. You have the richest uncle ever, and he thinks you're great. And this special relationship, this treasured status, is wholly disconnected from matters of merit, from considerations of worthiness. 
The status is undeserved. Verse 7, in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins through his blood. The status is a gift. Do you have a past? Are there things that you have done that hold ownership over you now? Is there this twisted and inward bent to your being? Join the club. Because of what God has done in Jesus, the status of blessing, the status of dignified daughter or beloved son are freely available, freely yours and mine. And the language of redemption here is the language of ownership. You have been purchased. You have been won from powers, the powers of sin and death and hell that have sought to destroy you. And you've been transferred to the ownership of one who loves you, who desires your freedom and your flourishing. And as a great cost to himself, made them possible. That status is yours in Christ. It's one of unimaginable dignity. It's wholly undeserved. It is freely given. The environment in which we are seeking to live today is so often inhospitable to these truths. So much in our lives, in our world, communicates something different to us. Communicates irrelevance. Communicates isolation, a lack of value. Communicates disqualification. Like That's for someone else. That's not for you. And those lies can feel so powerful, so real. Some of you know this this morning acutely. You are suffering. You're lonely. You're scared. This is why communities that might embody the consolation of these gospel truths are essential for life. This is why the call of God upon us to more fully be a local expression of the church that reflects these truths is so vital for our neighbors, for our colleagues, for the children among us, for one another. I was reading this week about this kind of not very widely practiced, more theoretical form of scuba diving. It's tethered scuba diving. And it's much like regular scuba, except rather than personal oxygen tanks, each diver is tethered to a specific source of oxygen, like on the ship. And it allows divers, theoretically, to go longer and farther, because they're not just relying on what they can carry. So each diver is underwater in this place that's inhospitable to human life, but they're drawing breath, drawing life from the source. The word of God for us today through the writings of Paul, is that whatever the environment around us, however inhospitable it is, you and I are tethered in the highest places. We're connected to where it matters most, in a relationship with the living God, to the source of life and peace, the source of favor and blessing. You are tethered in Christ, in heavenly realms. And that connection, Paul says, is totally secure. Nothing can sever it. That's the language of verse 13. You're sealed, marked with a seal by God's very presence now and into the future. This is your status. The language of future then leads us to the second term, right? To destiny. Where are we headed? The blessings of God in Christ are for the present, but also extend into the future. And in verses 8 through 10, Paul's description of God's purposes extends to all things, And he dives into the very mysteries of God's will. The language there gets kind of intimidating. But the point made is actually quite straightforward. It is that in the life, the death, the resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, God's plan for reality has been revealed and is now coming into full effect. 
God's purpose is for life to win out over death, for good to triumph over evil, for love and peace and righteousness to endure through the way of Jesus that has been made clear and has been set into motion. Nothing stops what Paul describes here from taking place. I went to the doctor this week, and I was talking to them, and I was like, yeah, I have this little bump under the skin on the side of my face. And the doctor was like, oh yeah, there's some discoloration there too. And I was like, awesome, thank you. <laughs> it's nothing serious, it's just my body decaying. <laughs> I'm growing older. However much, however much I might exercise. Wow, that, that got more of a laugh than I expected. <laughs> People are like, you are decaying. We can see it. <laughs> so however much I might exercise or moisturize, entropy is winning out. My body is going to fade away. Beyond our own bodies, this is going to be a hard turn. But there are things happening in our world that are terrifying, right? Things spinning out of control. There's decay, there's destruction. But though our bodies fade away, though the very earth and heavens will pass away, God's purposes don't fail. And Jesus will have his satisfaction. All things will be brought under him, Paul says. And the specific term used in verse 10 is recapitulation. And it carries with it both the sense of things being like summed up, brought to their right and fitting conclusion. Think of justice being done. But they also carry with it, it also carries with it the idea of like order restored, right? If decapitation is the removal of order, this is the restoring of order. All things brought into right alignment under Jesus' gracious and lavishly good rule. The early church father, Theodred of Cyprus, put this beautifully in these words. He said, recapitulation means the transformation of everything. Visible creation, what we see and encounter, will be delivered from corruption, will receive incorruption, and hosts of unseen powers will rejoice continually because sorrow and grief and sighing and pollution and war and oppression and the degradation of our bodies will all now have fled away. Whatever circumstances you and I face or will face, whatever humiliations or hurts, and they're real. That is our destiny in Jesus Christ. You are God's possession in Jesus, and he is so very sure-handed. And in a frightened and insecure world, communities of women and men who have this hope, who can extend this hope, are a beacon, are a light. And in the language of verse 14, this hope is guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. That's more than a deposit or earnest money. It's more than leaving your driver's license somewhere to like guarantee. God is saying, I have given myself as a pledge. I will see it done. He is present with us, working to this end, making sure and certainty that this destiny for all things and for us in Christ will come to fruition. So incredible status and secure destiny. If you know the end of the story, destiny, if you know your status, who you are in the story, then you have a pretty good idea of what you're supposed to do. You know your calling, your vocation. And this is the final focus of ours on God's blessings. Out of the dignity we have as beloved daughters, adopted sons, out of the sure and certain hope we have in Jesus, we have been given this glorious vocation together. 
In his biography of Frederick Douglass, David Blight argues that not only were Douglass's words, his writings and his speeches, powerful tools for the cause of abolition, but Blight argues that his very life was a text that communicated the truth of his cause. He was a fugitive slave whose body carried the scars of what he'd suffered. And he was this incredible orator and thinker. And so his life was a testimony to the dignity of those who are, who were enslaved. They're made in the image of God. And his very being, his body, was a witness to the defacing, the wicked power of slavery in the United States. His very existence was this rebuke. It communicated something. In verse 12, when the Apostle Paul describes how the people of God, those who have, are first to put their hope in Christ, are to be for the praise of his glory, I think he has something similar in mind. Yes, there are all kinds of things the people of God are called to do. Actions of justice and mercy, bearing witness, evangelism, contending for the lowly and marginalized. It has been so wonderful to visit various neighborhood groups these past weeks and to hear our desires for how this space, this property might be used for the blessing of others. Yes, 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 that is a God-delighting impulse. We dream about the possibilities of what could be done here. I dream about children growing up in the knowledge of God's love. I dream about healing, physical healing. I dream about adults coming to know Jesus for the first time. I dream about this property being used to bless the poor, the marginalized. Yet an implication of what Paul is describing here is that the people of God in Christ, by their very existence, spiritually blessed in heavenly realms, bring praise to God. They are themselves together a text that testifies to the glory of God, who in their being bear witness to the reality of his grace, pointing others not to our own righteousness, our own good needs, but first and foremost to his righteousness and what he has done. This weekend, coming weekend, we are honored to be able to host this diaspora conference, this conference of Christians, migrant Christians living in the United States from various churches, various ethnicities. I'm very excited about it. And I'm sure that each of those churches represented here will be able to talk about the things that they are doing, the things that they have done. But that group that will gather here is by its very existence from different nations and ethnicities across these lines, a miracle of God's grace. It testifies to the power of the gospel, to the blessing of God. I feel like I'm struggling with the language here. But it's as though there's this great river through history, God's plan of salvation, this praiseworthy plan to restore all things in Jesus, culminating, crescendoing in the praise of his glory. And those who are in Christ are plunged into that current, swept along in it, and so our particular vocations, your particular vocation, and our individual acts of service and love, small or great, they're drops and droplets in this great river of praise, this torrent of praise. How do we swim with that current? Quite simply, we praise. We proclaim the excellencies of God. We sing of his grace and goodness. We live in word and deed with freedom and generosity in light of the lavish riches he has blessed with us. When we do so, we are living into our calling and into the very current of the universe. When you live out your gratitude for the riches of his grace, you are acting in concert 
with this eternal song, river, whatever, of praise that has begun now and will continue for all time. That is what you've been brought into. That's what you've been plunged into in your baptism. And this, too, is part of the blessings that are yours in Christ. So where does this abundant blessing related to status, our destiny, our vocation, leave us? Two closing exhortations. First, if the blessings that Paul enumerates here are foreign to you, unknown to you, my encouragement is believe the gospel. If they're brand new to you, know that they are yours in Christ. The full weight of all these blessings rests with Jesus. Eleven times in this really long sentence, Paul writes, in Christ or in him. It's all focused on Jesus. So set your focus, your trust in the person of Jesus. Investigate him if you have questions. Receive him as Lord and Savior. Second, over the coming weeks of this campaign, you will be invited to pray the prayer, Heavenly Father, how are you inviting me to participate? My desire is that when you hear those words, when you hear that prayer, a hyperlink would open in your mind over the words, Heavenly Father. And through that link in your imagination, that there would be the longest run-on sentence ever describing every spiritual blessing that is yours in Christ Jesus. And that that would be the context in which you would discern your part to play. And more than that, that it would be the context in which you live to the praise of his glory. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.